Got your Bibles, you can go. We're going to go kind of Matthew chapter 1, Luke chapter 1 this morning, okay? We're going to start in Matthew. Right now, what a great time of year. It's awesome, isn't it? Good family, good to be with your church family. Let's read in Matthew chapter 1, it says this, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The whole New Testament starts with the genealogy, with the story of Jesus' family heritage, the family tree. Genealogies were, well, the Gospel of Matthew was written specifically, you know, each one of the Gospels has a different focus. The Gospel of Matthew was specifically written for Jewish readers, and so it's got things that are very specific to them. And so naturally, he starts with uh, a genealogy because they were important to the Jewish people, because without the genealogy, they couldn't prove their heredity, they could not prove their tribal affiliation, uh, they could not prove their rights to. Uh, their family inheritance. And so Jesus' genealogy, as Matthew begins to write, needs to prove a few things. First of all, his nationality, of course. It needed to prove that Jesus was a son of Abraham because God had promised that it would be through the seed of Abraham that the entire world would be blessed. The genealogy of Jesus also needed to prove his royalty, it had to be proven that Jesus was a son of David because David's family line was the royal line within the people of Israel and God had promised, he had promised David that one of his descendants would rule on his throne forever and that that descendant would oversee a kingdom that would be eternal, that it would have no end. And so the Jews knew that the Messiah needed to be both the, the seed of Abraham and the son of David. And there is no one else in all of history who can uh, make this claim and, and prove that heredity besides Jesus Christ. Because as history tells us in 70 AD, the Romans, when they were uh, laying siege to the city of Jerusalem, uh, destroyed the temple and in the midst, they burned all of the genealogical records of the people of, of Israel and and the result is, is that the only genealogical record that we have today is recorded actually by Matthew and then again by Luke in his gospel that prove that Jesus is of Abraham and of David. You know, family history is an interesting thing. I, 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 I don't know about you guys. I, I love to find out history about my family and, and different things. And I, I, I'm proud of where some of my family comes from and some of the things that they've done. You know, one of my grandpas was an inspector in the Vancouver City Police, and I love to hear his stories. My other grandpa, he was, you know, I, I call him an inventor, a fabricator, you know, from church steeples in Vancouver to building armored cars. That was his, his thing. You know, I could tell you interesting family history about my great-grandmother, who grew up as an orphan in England and came to Canada as a mail-order bride for my great-grandfather, uh, right to Vancouver. You know, there's wonderful stories in the midst of all of our family history about how, how different members 
of our family came to faith in Jesus Christ and how different people influence that. But here's the thing with family. You know what they say about family? You can pick your friends, but you're stuck with your family, right? And, you know, just as wonderful as there's some members of our family are, there, there's others that we might just prefer to not talk about, uh, to not share about, the kind of person that we wish that they uh, might just go away or that their situation uh, or the history that we associate them with would just disappear from the family record because all families have skeletons in the closet, don't they? As you come to the genealogy of Jesus, some of the men listed in the genealogy certainly, you know, you'd say they dropped the ball at times in their lives. At the, at the same time, it's a pretty impressive family tree. But there is something in this family tree that maybe you've noticed before or heard taught on before or read in your quiet time before that is super fascinating for at least every Jewish person who would ever re read it. And that's this, that there are five women listed in the family tree of Jesus Christ in the genealogy. Now to you and I, you say, well, big deal. Who cares? So what? Not the case for the Jewish people. For them, that's mind-blowing to have women included in the family tree because it was traced through your father and your grandfather and your great-grandfather and down the line. It was a culture that we know was very male-dominated. A common prayer for a very religious Jewish man was to go to the temple and to thank God that he was not a dog, that he was not a Gentile, and that he was not a woman. I mean, that's just the truth. As, as awful as that sounds for us. And so women's names were not included in genealogies. It was, it was a rare thing. You, you see it in the Old Testament once in a while, a little, but not as common as we see here. And I guess the question would be, you know, why would the Holy Spirit direct Luke to include these ladies? What are they doing? They're in this record, in this list, in the Christmas story. Well, all of these ladies are a wonderful illustration of the grace of God. And, and they point us to the fact that the kingdom of God established by Jesus Christ was going to operate on a different uh, basis than than their religious culture and tradition had expected. In a culture that had uh, restricted and limited women and dominated them by men, Jesus was going to level the playing field. In a culture where people took pride in their pedigree, in their family values, in their morality, in their racial superiority, uh, in their religious practices, Jesus is going to level the playing field. You know, the Bible says this, let every man who boasts, boast in, the, boast in the Lord. And Paul said in Galatians chapter 3 verse 28 that there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And so the Christmas story is a story of love, of kindness, of mercy, of grace, of the advent. It's the story of the humility of our God. It's the story of God's plan for redemption for mankind. The kindness and love of God appeared in the person of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, born of a virgin, came as a baby to redeem the world from sin and from the punishment of sin and to give us the hope of eternal life. The gift of eternal life. And so this morning, I thought we'd take a look 
at uh, the stories of some of these ladies included, well, actually all five of these ladies included here in Jesus' genealogy. These, now here's the thing. These are the stories that would just be easier to forget when it came to your family tree. But God included their names in the Christmas story in Jesus' genealogy because these are stories of redemption. Let's check it out. Verse 2 and 3. It says this. Abraham was the father of Isaac. And Isaac the father of Jacob. And Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah the, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez the father of Hezron. And Hezron the father of Ram. Now if you want to circle these names as you're going through. The one you want to catch. There is Tamar. Easy to slip right over it. That was a woman from the Old Testament. Her story is told in Genesis chapter 38. Her husband's name was Judah. We recognize that name, right? Of course, from the tribe of Judah. Judah was one of the 12 sons of Jacob. Uh, one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And Judah himself had three sons. He had three boys. Their names were Ur, Onan, and Shelah. Now, I have no idea uh, how, how to explain the last one. Sheila, not exactly a great boy's name. But um, Genesis chapter 38 tells us this about Judah. That Judah left the vicinity where his father Israel, Jacob, was living. And he left his brothers and he moved in and he lived amongst the Canaanite people. The people of the land there in Canaan. And there... He married a Canaanite woman, which we know from the accounts of Genesis was not God's plan. He was, he was not to go and marry a, a foreign woman who did not worship the Lord. And while he married this woman, they had three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. Ur, the oldest, in turn also married a Canaanite woman. Now the Bible doesn't tell us the details. All the Bible says is this in Genesis chapter 38. That Ur, Judah's oldest, was a wicked man. And so the Lord put him to death. That's all the Bible says. It's kind of interesting. You wonder, wow. Wonder what kind of, what does that mean? How wicked was this guy? I don't know. Obviously pretty wicked. God just simply struck him down and he disappears from the pages of scripture. The practice in their culture was this. That if the family heir, which would have been Ur, passed away without an heir of his own, it was the obligation of the next brother to marry the widow and to produce an heir for his deceased brother. Now it's kind of weird, isn't it? I don't know about you. It sounds like a little bit of a complicated family mess to me. But that's how it worked. And so the family heritage would continue. And specifically, you know, that was for the passing on of inheritance, for, the, for a name, for a family line to continue. And so uh, that, was, that was the deal. So when Ur, Ur passed away, Onan, number two son, was obligated to marry the widow. The Bible tells us this in, in Genesis 38, that Onan refused to father an heir. That, you know, he would do things to make sure that Tamar did not become pregnant 
uh, while they were sleeping together. And so because of the hardness of his heart and his stubborn refusal to allow Tamar to raise a child in his brother's name, guess what the Lord did? Struck him dead. Struck brother number two down. So now by law, that boy named Sheila <laughs> was supposed to marry the widow. Now you can see he was obligated to do so exactly, in fact. And so you can imagine the thoughts of Judah. His first two boys that married this woman have ended up dead. Uh-oh. Right? He connected the dots and he thought, okay, uh, Sheila is young yet. So I'm going to just tell Tamar that she's going to have to wait until he's a little bit older and then they can get married. And so until that time, uh, Judah sent Tamar home to her parents' house, which was a disgrace in that culture. And she lived with her parents as a widow. And as the years went by, she noticed something that young Sheila had grown up and was of age to be married and Judah did not keep his promise by giving his third son to Tamar. And so Tamar lived as a widow. And so Genesis 38 tells us to take things into our own hands. She did something kind of crazy. She heard that her father-in-law was going to a certain village. He was going to travel there. And so she went to the, to the, along the roadside where he was going. And she dressed herself as a prostitute. As a temple prostitute. And as Judah was coming along the road, he saw this, what he thought was a temple prostitute. And he propositioned his own daughter-in-law, not knowing that it was his daughter-in-law. And uh, he didn't have any money on him. You gotta love the Bible, eh? I mean, there's good stuff, good stories in the Bible. You can't, you can't, you can't make this stuff up. <laughs> Just like your family history. You can't make that stuff up. So Judah didn't have any money on him. And so he negotiated with the prostitute that he would give his signet ring, uh, his staff, and his cloak, and that she was to hold them in pledge, and he would send her later a young lamb, and he would get his items back. And so Judah slept with his daughter-in-law, not knowing that it was his daughter-in-law, and he went on his way. And so like I said, you know, your family might be a little bit messed up, but this is a whole nother level of messed up. Uh, later, Judah sent the lamb to redeem his stuff and to pay her uh, to get his signet ring and his staff and, and his, his cloak back. But no one could find this prostitute that he had met on the side of the road. And so he asked around and no one knew what he was talking about and he said to himself, man, I'm going to look like an idiot here. Uh, my stuff's gone. I'm going to just let it go and I'm going to forget about this whole situation. And so life went on for him and some months went by and then word hit the street that his daughter-in-law who was living with her parents as a widow was pregnant. That she was guilty of prostitution. And Judah saw this as an opportunity to finally be rid of this woman and to set his youngest son free. And so he said, well, she's got to die for those crimes. Uh, her response was to him to send him back his signet ring and his staff and his cloak and to say, do you recognize these? Because the owner of these is the father of 
uh, the child that's in my womb. In fact, it was twins, the Bible tells us. Um, and I just imagine his jaw hit the floor, <laughs> whatever. What a nightmare story. Uh, that was Tamar. Uh, and so Judah finally admitted, you know, I, I, I should have given you my son. I've done wrong by you. He said about her, you're more righteous than I am. And see, the whole thing was really Judah's fault because he hadn't, he, he had failed to take care of his family in the, in the traditional and customary way. And in, in holding back his son, he had robbed Tamar of her rights to have an offspring. He had robbed Tamar of her right to have an offspring in the name of her first husband. And like I said, the, the Jewish people were, were so proud of their culture. They, they placed such an emphasis on taking care of family. It was a man's responsibility to do so. And because they placed such great emphasis on family um, and taking care of family, to put Tamar's name in the genealogy of Jesus would just be such a revelation to, to every Jewish person who would ever read that. And so, you know, when we say that Jesus is of the tribe of Judah, we say the lion of the tribe of Judah, it was through one of the two sons of Tamar, the twins that were born of their father-in-law that Jesus' family tree came. See, faithfulness to family obligations is important, but the emphasis on this story is, is the reminder that God, of God's grace that he can take any family situation, any scenario, he can take the unloved woman, he can take the unloved person, and he can give them a hope and a future, and he can write them into his story. And Tamar, like I said, went on to give birth to twin sons, and along with Judah, she and her sons are included in the line of Jesus. Look at verse 4. And Ram, the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. There's one you can circle, Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. There's another one you can circle. And Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. Rahab. <laughs> She's another one you wouldn't want in your family line, you know, in a culture that valued sexual purity, uh, the lineage of Jesus, his family tree includes a, a woman, Rahab, who was a Gentile, and she was a prostitute. Not just a one-time deal like Tamar. She made her living as a prostitute. Her story first appears on the pages of the Bible in the book of Joshua. In fact, she worked we know uh, in the city of Jericho uh, as a harlot. And her home, the Bible tells us, was built into the city wall. And there was a, there's a sense when you read her story, she lived on the fringes of society. She was an outsider. And so when Israel came to conquer the land of Canaan, they came to the Jordan River and to the boundaries of the land of Israel. And they were going to cross into Israel. We know the first city they had to take on was the city of Jericho, where Rahab uh, lived and worked. And so Joshua sent spies into the city of Jericho and Rahab's home provided for them an excellent base for their undercover mission. 
They scoped out the city, and she helped them hide, and she helped them escape the authorities of Jericho. And in the process, as you read her story, what happened for her was that she took a step of faith, and she believed in the God of the Israelites. She believed that the Lord, the God of Israel, was worthy of her trust. And when the city of Jericho was destroyed, Rahab and her family were saved because she placed her faith in the Lord. And so God works, you know, and through people like Rahab. You use her life through someone who we could easily reject. She was used by God to help save his people. And Rahab is in the genealogy of Jesus as a trophy of the redemptive power of God's grace. In fact, in the New Testament, she's recorded in Hebrews chapter 11. It's, it's the hall of fame, the hall of faith. Uh, list of great people of faith throughout the Bible and she is considered a woman of faith because in spite of how little she knew about the Lord uh, she risked everything and she believed that he was the true and living God and worthy of her trust and she put her faith in the Lord. When you read about Rahab what did God remember about her? Was it her profession? Rahab the prostitute? No, she goes down in the records of scripture uh, for faith. God remembered her faith. And because of her faith, Rahab rose above her profession. She rose above her history. She escaped the life of prostitution. And she became part of the family line of Jesus Christ. An awesome story of grace. Then there's Ruth. Her story is a lot more tame than the first two. Uh, you know, the, the story of Ruth, you, you guys, I think, know it probably pretty well. The Jews, because of their relationship with God and their covenant with God, believed themselves really to be uh, racially superior. And God had commanded them to, to not marry and intermix with the people around them. And they had this nature that was susceptible to think, I'm better than other people. We're better. Our family's better because, because of who we are and where we come from. And, and in the story of the family that Ruth eventually married to, there's, there's just this sense that they forgot about their relationship with God and that it was on the account of, of his grace and not on the account of their pedigree, their purebred, whatever. And we can be in danger, I think, of developing those same attitudes. And, and Ruth is a reminder, like these other ladies, of God's grace. See, Ruth was from Moab. She was a Gentile. When uh, this family from Israel departed from the town of Bethlehem in the midst of famine, they went to Moab and the two sons married Moabite girls. The oldest uh, married Ruth. And when her father-in-law had passed away and her husband had passed away and her brother's wife had passed away. Uh, Ruth, the Bible tells us, made a decision to return to the land of Israel with her mother-in-law, Naomi, where they would, you know, hopefully carve out a new life in Bethlehem and, and, and live there. Now, similar to Tamar's situation, Ruth and her mother-in-law, Naomi, needed someone to redeem them. That, what, that, what we know from the book of Ruth, the kinsman redeemer. 
uh, someone to carry on and produce an heir for their family name and for their family inheritance. And there was a man who had the right to marry Ruth, who could be her kinsman redeemer. Uh, But that first man that we read about in that story refused to marry Ruth because she was a Moabite, because she was a Gentile, because of her pedigree and her family background. He did not want to risk having the Moabite pollution in his pure line, basically you could say. And the thing was that that Ruth had very clearly become a follower and a worshiper of the Lord God. Ruth came to know the Lord through her mother-in-law Naomi. And she confessed the the God of her mother-in-law to be her God and she worshiped the Lord. But when you read in the Old Testament, in fact, we've seen part of this as we've come through the Exodus story. Actually, we're not quite there yet. We're going to see it in the Exodus story. That Moabites lived under the eternal curse of God because they had withstood Israel as they were traveling through the desert eventually after their Sinai encounter. And the curse the Lord put against a Moabite was this. In fact, the Lord said, Moab is my toilet bowl. That's where I go to defecate, basically, is what the Lord said about Moab and about the people there. And uh, the Lord had said, a Moabite cannot come into the temple until the 10th generation. They have to be 10 generations removed from their original people before they can come into my, to my presence. And yet, by the grace of God, Ruth became a wife of Boaz whose son was Obed, who fathered Jesse, who fathered David, who became the king of Israel. And and Ruth, the Moabitess, is included in the family line of the Messiah, Jesus. The next woman in this story, verse 6. And Jesse, the father of David, the king, and David, the father of Solomon, By the wife of Uriah. You can underline that. By the wife of Uriah. We know who that was. Bathsheba. That's right. It's so nice to have you here, Doris. Yeah, it's good to have you here. The wife of Uriah was Bathsheba. You know, Jewish people, like you and I, proud of their history. Proud of their, the heroes of their culture. And one of the great heroes of the people of Israel was King David, right? The shepherd who struck down the giant. The king who had the heart after God. Uh, but the Bible tells us that, that one day this king, when he should have gone off to war with his army, stayed home. And the unfortunate result was that he began an adulterous affair with the wife of one of his mighty men. Her name was Bathsheba. And David's adulterous affair with Bathsheba ended in his plotting the murder of her husband Uriah and planning that. And Bathsheba, of course, conceived and it ended in the death of their firstborn. And the fruit of the whole situation was not only painful for David, not only painful for Bathsheba, it was painful for an entire nation. For, for the, all the people of Israel, remembering that such a hero 
a warrior, a king, a worshiper, a songwriter, a lover of God had failed so miserably in his life. And so including Bathsheba in the lineage of the Messiah, it's just further reminder uh, when it comes to Jesus that, well, that we place our faith in Jesus. You know, if we place our faith in family responsibility or pedigree or sexual purity or racial superiority or some hero that we follow, some hero of the faith, we're off track. Our, our, those things are not worthy of our faith and trust. Only Jesus Christ is worthy of our faith and trust. And for anyone who reads the Gospel of Matthew, this Christmas story as it begins, the story of Christ's coming begins with this genealogy to remind us that the story of God's coming the story of his salvation, the story of his advent is a story of his grace and love. The genealogy really sets the stage for the start of the entire New Testament where the Lord expands the story of salvation for the entire world from being focused just on one little nation and he encompasses all the people of the world. And the genealogy of Jesus is meant to be this reminder to all of us that we should never think that Jesus cannot use us. We should never think that we or someone else is too far gone for Jesus to work in their lives. God worked in the lives of each one of these women and he turned their situations into good. He redeemed their past and they lived for him and they had a family heritage that honored him because they turned in faith to him. See, we all have failures in the past. All our families have skeletons in the closet. And, you know, your failures, your family failures, they can be decades old, but they, or they can be days old. You can feel like an outsider to the Christian community like Ruth was amongst the Jews. But Jesus makes it clear, the Bible makes it clear that when we come to him, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. It's awesome how God can redeem our story. The genealogy of Jesus continues all the way up to verse 16. Jump up to verse 16 with me. From Abraham to David to Joseph. And we read in verse 16, it says, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. So there's the fifth lady you can underline in that story. Mary. Mary's a little bit different story. You know, not a widow, not unloved by men, not unloved by her family, not a prostitute, not a foreigner, not an adulterer. I mean, Mary's just average. She's just like the, the everyday girl from some backwoods town, Nazareth. Where? That was Mary. Inconsequential, of no value to really, it's just a, a little member of society hidden in the midst of things. When we read in Matthew chapter 1, verse 16, you notice that it does not say that Joseph was the father of Jesus. It says Joseph was the husband of Mary because Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit when he overshadowed the Virgin Mary. And so Joseph was not the father of Jesus, but he raised Jesus as his own. 
And I think as we look at these scriptures this morning, it's important that we recognize Jesus' work in human history is not, it's not limited by human failures. It's not limited by our sins. Rather, Jesus works through ordinary people with messed up lives, man. Messed up backgrounds uh, from different places. God worked through all of these, these lives of these ordinary people and he did it all so that he would receive the glory. So that he would be worshipped. And, and we know that about the Lord. He still uses ordinary, normal people to accomplish his will. And I would say this to you. God wants to use you. God wants to take your life and your story and turn it into a trophy of his grace. Mary, in many ways, was totally normal. Average. Yeah, there's royalty in her family line. I like to tease my wife. Because my mother-in-law says, there's royalty in our family line, you know. So, oh yeah, well, we're a long ways removed from that, aren't we? Okay, there was royalty in the family line of Mary, of the tribe of Judah, a descendant of David. But the family line of Herod had long usurped the throne of Israel under Roman rule. Mary's existence was obscurity in a backwoods town called Nazareth, right? Where, where like we see in the scripture when he said, Nazareth, what good can come from Nazareth? As Nathaniel said. We know nothing of her family. We know nothing of her parents. In fact, it's been suggested that Mary might have even been an orphan. We don't know anything about her. I mean, when the time came, she left and she went and stayed with her cousin Elizabeth for a little while. She, she was likely just 15 years old when the angel Gabriel was sent from God uh, to that little town, Nazareth. And the Bible says Mary was a virgin. That she was betrothed to a man named Joseph who was also of the house of David. And he was likely a little older than her. And the two of them were betrothed. Betrothal, betrothal is kind of like d- different culture, different marriage practice, but it's kind of like a period of engagement that the two of them would go through where they had entered into and their family had entered into a legally binding contract in which gifts had been exchanged. And during this period, the couple didn't live together. There are no sec- sexual relations in, in their relationship at this point. Uh, and if there was to be so, it was regarded as the equivalent of adultery. And to break off this betrothal was like, uh, it required a divorce even at this point. And so the greeting of the, the angel Gabriel no doubt caught Mary by surprise. Uh, and she was troubled. Uh, Luke tells us, you can turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 1 with me. She was troubled as the uh, angel greeted her and she was caught by surprise. And the Bible says in Luke chapter 1 there that she tried to discern what, it, what this calling might mean. When the angel said, you're highly favored, wh- what does that mean? And the, the angel announced that Mary would conceive a child and bear a son and that she should call his name Jesus. And the angel proclaimed this about Jesus, that he would be great. That he would be called the son of the most high. That the Lord would give him the throne of David. That he would reign over the house of Jacob forever. And that his kingdom would know no end. Now as Mary contemplated these things. She quickly put two and two together. 
Because she knew where babies come from. It takes a man and a woman for a child to be conceived. And so she said to the angel, how can this be since I am a virgin? You know, one of the amazing things about Luke's account and a very important fact that you can't ever move on in the Christmas story is the virginity of Mary. Luke, with great clarity, communicates that Mary was a virgin. Think about it. Luke was what? What was Luke's medical profession? Or profession. I gave it away. (laughs) He was a medical physician. Look, Luke knew where babies come from, right? And yet he clearly reported and believed that Mary was a virgin and that the child's conception was the work of the Holy Spirit. Kind of just a great thing to think about. That it was Luke, a doctor, who reported that. And that is what Gabriel said to Mary. He said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you and therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And so from obscurity, from backwoods, overlooked by most, of humble estate, the Bible says, the Lord chose Mary. And she was not blessed because of who she was. She was simply blessed because God chose her. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it, let it be to me according to your word. And then the Bible says, The angel of the Lord departed from her. You know, the Bible tells us that Abraham believed God and it was counted him as right. It counted him as righteous. Abraham simply took God at his word. He he believed in faith that God had the power to do what he said he would do. And the Bible says God counted him righteous because of that fact. And in the pattern of that great patriarch, Abraham, Mary believed the word of God to her. She believed the word of the Lord. In Luke chapter 1 verse 46 records this great song of praise that Mary sang to the Lord. Once she had traveled down to be with her cousin Elizabeth who was pregnant with John the Baptist. And uh, actually let's pick it up in verse 43. It says this, chapter 1, Luke. This is Elizabeth speaking. And why is this granted to me that, my mo- that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that, that there would be a fulfillment of that which was spoken to her from the Lord. And then Mary said, I think you could say, actually this is, it's been called the last psalm of the Old Testament and the first hymn of the New Testament. Here it is, verse 46. My soul magnifies the Lord. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in in the thoughts of their hearts. And he has brought down the mighty from their thrones. And exalted those of humble estate. 
He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in, in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Uh, from her obscurity, humility, might even say silence because you don't actually hear much about Mary in the scriptures except on the first little bit of the Christmas story. After that, you don't hear much from her. This song, though, this song comes. But the thing about this song is that it's totally not original. It, it, it wasn't just a bubbling spring of praise that welled up in her. The praise that welled up in her uh, came from a life steeped in the word of God. You know, like a good pot of tea? <laughs> that hot water that's been soaked and, and, and saturated uh, uh, the, the tea and extracted the flavor from the tea so that it makes something good to drink? That was Mary's life. She was saturated in the word of God. When you search out the references to this song which she began to sing, uh, you find the Old Testament everywhere throughout it. When she says, my soul magnifies the Lord, she takes those words directly from the mouth of Hannah, who, who was the mother of Samuel. When she says, he has shown his strength with his arm, those were the words of David, the psalmist. In Mary's song, you will find the words of Job. You will find the thoughts of Moses. And you will find the prophecies of Isaiah. There are echoes of the prophets Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Micah, and Daniel. There are the hopes and the promises that we know came from Abraham in the song. See, see Mary might have just been a teenager, but Mary's heart and Mary's life was a life that was so filled up with the word of God, that at, the, uh, that at that hour it welled up and it burst forth like a song of praise to God. The Mary fed her, her, her heart on the word of God and the word of God prepared her to be a servant of God. Obscurity, small town, whatever, she fed her heart on the word of God. And I would say this, if Mary's song communicates one thing, it communicates this, that God actually brings down the mighty and the proud of heart and he exalts those that are humble in heart. And so, you know, you think about these, these women, Tamar, uh, Ruth, I'm missing one already, Rahab, hilarious, Bathsheba and, and Mary, each of their stories echo the fact that when you humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, even after great failure, he will lift you up. Five names, five women, whose names in the eyes of men didn't belong in such a great genealogy, but the Lord saw fit to display them as trophies of his grace. Um, the Lord picked those whom you and I wouldn't have picked. The unloved, the prostitute, the foreigner, the adulterer, the humble one living in obscurity. And I would say this, isn't that the Christmas story in a nutshell right there? 
that the great king planned his earthly visitation, that he began to establish his kingdom by starting with the manger throne, but by entering into the to a, a messy place. He, he entered into the barnyard mess and the stable and, and that place, that messy place became a place where shepherds and wise men worshiped. And it's still the pattern of the, of the Lord. It's still the pattern of God. He chooses the foolish things of the earth that it might result in the praise of his glory, the Bible tells us. I mean, you think about it. Consider your calling. Consider your background. Not many of you were wise according to the standards of this world when God called you. Not many were powerful. Not many were noble. More than likely, you might count yourself among the unlo- amongst the unloved. You might count yourself amongst those of, of ill repute, amongst foreigners. You might count yourself amongst the adulterers, you mount, count yourself amongst those of humble beginning. But I would say this this morning as we contemplate the Christmas story. What a comfort it is to be loved by God. What a comfort it is to be loved by God and to have him choose us. For God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chose that which was weak in the world to shame the strong. He chose that which was low and despised so that no human being may boast in his presence. See, he is the source of your life in Christ Jesus. Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and our sanctification and our redemption. And this morning as we contemplate the Christmas story. Let him who boasts. Boast in the Lord. Let him who boasts. Boast in the Lord. And the Bible tells us. Some simple truths about the gospel. That man was made in the image of God. And designed for a relationship with God. That way back in the early part of Genesis, Adam walked with God and they had relationship. And yet in the midst of that, Adam chose to rebel against God. He chose sin over a relationship with God and and the relationship was broken. It was severed and, and they didn't walk together anymore. And that was the whole purpose of Christ's coming so that the broken relationship could be reestablished. And like all these ladies that we read about here this morning, a relationship with God is established by faith. It means that you take him at his word and you believe in that which he has said and you enter in. And the Bible tells us that this, this child became a man and he gave his life on the cross for the sins of the world. He, he died He was buried and he was raised to life and he ascended into heaven and he's coming back again. But the Bible says if you place your faith in him, that if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. And the beauty of that is this, is that God can take your unloved history, your reputation of ill repute, your 
not fitting in, whatever it is, your humble beginnings, and he can weave it into his story and make you a trophy of his grace. And you can have relationship with the Son of God. Isn't that awesome? This morning, would you stand with me and let's pray. I'm going to invite Murray and Beth to come. Father, today, we thank you once again for the Christmas story. We thank you for Jesus. I thank you, Jesus, that you love the unloved. You restore those with terrible history. You forgive the adulterer. You, you welcome the outsider, the foreigner, uh, into your family. Even those, Lord, who think, I'm of no consequence, I'm inconsequential, I, I, I come from nowhere. Lord, you welcome them into your story. You take the weak things of this world and you show your strength so that you might be praised. And this morning, Lord, those of us who know you, who have a relationship, we boast in you. We thank you, Jesus, for saving us. Thank you, Jesus, that you humbled yourself and you came to redeem us from sin and death. And Lord, this morning I pray for those that don't know you, that this Christmas season, that this morning, they would respond to your love and to your grace. That they would invite you in to be the Lord of their lives. That they would believe in, your, in their hearts that, that Jesus came to give his life. He came as that child to give his life for their sins. And that they would confess with your mouth that you are Lord. And this morning, I, I just wanted to give that opportunity. And so I just ask, if you, if you close your eyes and even just bow your head and respect your neighbor around you. And, but if you're here this morning and you say, man, I've never invited Jesus Christ into my heart and into my life to be my Lord. To forgive me of my sin. And I'd like to do that this morning. I, I just ask you to make eye contact with me, okay? I'm not going to point you out. I'd like to pray with you after, okay? If you'd like to invite Jesus Christ into your heart and into your life. Lord, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, for the Christmas story. We thank you for your coming. We thank you for saving us. Lord, for those that acknowledge this morning, I pray, God, your comfort and your peace, Lord. I pray that you'd, if it's a mess, you'd weave your grace into it. Lord, if it's, if it's humble beginnings, then I, I pray, God, that, that they would sense the, the blessing of being highly favored by the Lord. God, it's, this morning, I just thank you for choosing us. Thank you, Lord, for choosing us. And thank you that you came in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing this morning.